Hebrews chapter 5. Give me a few minutes before the Lord's table from one sentence in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Amen and amen. amen. One sentence. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. We are at a distinct disadvantage to appreciating a passage of Scripture like this because we grew up without having or needing priests. Priests are a necessity of religion as determined and declared by Jehovah Himself which all false religions ape, like the one represented by the man of sin who was on our shores last week. The Hebrews, the audience of this epistle, the Jews, were perfectly aware of the importance of a priest for the remission of sins. Paul used this epistle to persuade us, to persuade them, first of all, that Jesus was far superior to any of their priests. We need a priest to go between God and us. He's called a mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5. He's called a daysman in the book of Job. We need a man that can put a hand on God and a hand on us and be a mediator and reconcile us. God cannot be a mediator. God is one. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that God is one and cannot mediate Himself. He had to create and design and send a mediator, which He did in the Lord Jesus Christ. The high priest of our profession is back one page in chapter 3 and verse 1, where the apostle wrote, Wherefore, holy brethren, this is after everything Jonah quoted to us, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He is our high priest. Forget all other men as ever being able to perform the office of priest between you and God. He took on our nature, not that of angels, to be able to commiserate with us. And Jonah read those verses to us in verses 14 through 17 of that second chapter that he took on the nature that we his children had that he might deliver us from death. He did not take on him the nature of angels as verse 16 tells us, but he took on the nature of the seed of Abraham to be made in all things like us. So that chapter 4 can tell us in verse 15 that he can be touched with the feelings of all our infirmities because he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. 
In chapter 5, which you read last evening, it tells us in the first three verses, because a priest is subject to the infirmities of his constituents or church members, he is able to relate to them and to go to God on their behalf. It then progressed in describing what a great priest would be to say that in verses 4 and 5, he needs to have a valid ordination. And Jesus Christ had a valid ordination because Jesus was ordained in Psalm 110 and verse 4 where God made him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5. That no man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Anyone trying to get into the priesthood was judged by God for presuming upon an office they had no right to. So also, that fifth verse tells us, Christ glorified not Himself to be made in high priest, but God His Father made Him a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The details of the Melchizedek priesthood are in chapter 7 of this epistle, which we have dealt with at other times. In the following verses that we're going to look at now, this one sentence, his Melchizedek priesthood will be defined by his perfect results and his perfect priesthood. Rejoice with me as we look at these phrases of one sentence. Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ was made just like us. The great mystery of godliness begins with the words, God was manifest in the flesh. We believe John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh. He took on a blood, flesh, and bone body like we have. He was made a little lower than the angels for this signal purpose. That is to die for us by having flesh like us. Angels don't die. God cannot die. He needed to take on a flesh and blood body like us in order to die. Paul commended and praised Jesus for his willingness to humble himself, to come into this world as a servant, and to lay down his life on the cross. What we see in the words and verses, phrases following this are the things that he's accomplished as our great priest. The time of the following events were during his flesh existence on earth, who in the days of his flesh. Now Jesus still has a flesh and blood body, but it is a glorified flesh and blood body. It's not the same as our bodies are now, nor like his body was then. It's been changed by glorification. So these words are describing this sentence and limiting it to the time he was in the world, who in the days of his flesh, he still is in glorified flesh, but he isn't in the flesh that he was in for 33 and a half years. He became flesh and blood, no sin nature, so that he could suffer and relate to us. You have no struggles in your flesh like the struggles that our Lord had in his flesh. He still has a human flesh body, but it has been glorified and changed, as Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tell us, as our bodies will be changed when they are glorified. Do you want a high priest that has a flesh nature 
subject to the weaknesses and temptations that you have? Amen. We need a priest that is subject to those temptations, yet without sin. Because he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So as we look for a perfect priest, and this one sentence describes a perfect priest after the order of Melchizedek. Notice that verse 5 and verse 10 are sandwiching this sentence because it is about the priesthood of Melchizedek that Jesus had, and he was a perfect priest. One of the ways in which he is perfect, he was made like us. Like was read to us from Hebrews 2, he took our flesh existence, he was made after our nature, so that he could be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, yet without sin. We succumb to them and go down, he was victor over them. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications. These are describing his prayers in the garden of Gethsemane. Look at Matthew chapter 26 with me, keeping your place at Hebrews 5. Matthew chapter 26. Who, when he had offered up prayers and supplications. Prayers are a humble and solemn request to God in words, either verbally or mentally. To supplicate is to pray, but it's to pray with entreaties, which means to beg. The Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest in Gethsemane, prayed and begged like this. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them, that is his apostles, unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 44, And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three times the Lord Jesus Christ gets up from the ground, walks back to his three slothful apostles, finds them sleeping, and returns to the ground and prays the same thing three times. He was very sorrowful, and he was very heavy, even unto death, thinking about what was coming. This is your high priest. This is my high priest. He knew what to do in a time of trouble. He went to God. And even though he knew the will of God, he prayed, giving us a great example that even when we know the will of God of things that we should do, when we are faced with the weakness of our own selves doing those things, we can go and ask for strength from heaven. And as we're going to learn shortly, this prayer was heard. 
and he was strengthened. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 5. We could read those words again in the Gospel of Mark. We could read them in the Gospel of Luke. We could read them in the Gospel of John. Though not spoken in Gethsemane, but shortly before Gethsemane in the 12th chapter of John. Never a man knew the will of God better than the Lord Jesus Christ did, but yet he asked if it be possible for an alternative because what he was going to do was so terrible. But it's comforting to know that when we have something before us that we know is the will of God and it intimidates us or it overwhelms us at times, we can pray because we have a high priest that prayed in such a situation. We want to learn to pray as Jesus Christ taught us to pray and as He Himself did pray. Even with duties you know that you should do, your soul is weak. And do not define your weakness in such a way as to condemn the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not wrong for you, even though you know it to be the will of God, to ask for strength to do His will. Your Father in heaven knows your human frame and pities you accordingly for it. Do you want a high priest that knows how to pray and supplicate the God of heaven? Amen. And look at His praying. And you remember that He is now interceding in heaven for us. And notice the the earnestness of it. Luke would describe it as sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the earnestness of His soul, praying for going to the cross in strength and confidence. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, we have our next clause. With strong crying and tears, who in the days of His flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears. That is what was happening in Gethsemane, though it may not have used those words in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It was strong crying and tears coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. His praying and supplicating, both of which we need to learn to do, was very passionate When we read James 5, 16, it says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Look at the fervency of our high priest. No wonder his apostles came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Do you see that Jesus was fully aware of the great horror coming to him on the cross? He had looked forward to it during his life. I mean, he knew that that was what he was there for. He knew that was the ultimate part of his father's business. He was afraid because he had a human nature to feel things like the fear we feel, but the fear that we feel often results in destroying us, and it didn't him because he was willing to submit to the will of God no matter the fear. Nevertheless, thy will be done in this matter. The Bible says fervent prayer avails much. Let's never forget his strong crying and tears. It's not wrong to cry. It's wrong to have theatrics that are put on. But it's not wrong to cry with strong crying or with tears. David repeatedly describes his tears. He speaks of making his bed to swim. And the the amount of tears that he had in his prayers. He was the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus had bowels to produce tears. They're not to be produced by a choice. They're produced by bowels. Because you're moved by something. It comes from the inside and flows outward. We don't need or want theatrics. We want the true thing of fervent praying like our Lord Jesus had. Lacking tears usually or may indicate a lack of bowels. You don't have bowels for the matter, and so it doesn't produce the tears. We want more bowels. And so we look at a passage like this and embrace it to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, who with prayers and supplications and strong crying and tears, He is our high priest. He is our example. Do you want a high priest so empathetic and passionate to pray or supplicate God this way? Amen. Who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto Him that was able to save Him from death. God was able to save Jesus from dying on the cross, but His will would not have been done if He had rescued His Son. The power of the Jews and the power of the Romans combined and squared meant nothing to God or Jesus. Hezekiah, in far greater straits, was saved immediately and totally from the Assyrians by one angel of the Lord that took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Jesus told Peter that his father could send 12 legions of angels right then to deliver him. It's found in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53. Words that we should love. When Peter drew a sword and smote off the ear of Melchmas, the high priest's servant, Jesus said, Peter, put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Remember that about Rome. Swords are coming they've never seen before. By the Lord of hosts. Jesus to Peter, thinkest thou that I cannot now, right now, pray to my Father, and He shall presently, now, give me more than 12 legions of angels? More than 72,000 angels, if we assume 6,000 Roman soldiers for one of the Roman legions. God was able, but then the will of God would not have been done, and your eternal destiny rested on the will of God being done. But if Jesus had asked for those angels or God had sent them, the Scripture would fail, which the next verse in Matthew 26 explains. But then, thus it must be that Jesus must die, and so it cannot be interrupted. Never forget that God's will is declared in Scripture so that the one is as sure as the other. The Scripture must be fulfilled. No, I thought it was the will of God from His eternal counsel. But the Scripture so accurately completely and by the right authority reflects the, 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 the determinate counsel of God that you can refer to the Scripture or God's will being done because they are the same. One's expressed in writing. One comes from His eternal counsel. You know from above, you know from what we've read so far, you know from the first verse here, the seventh verse, that Jesus begged supplicated God for the cup to pass from Him if possible. 
If you ask for God to deliver you from something, even from death, like in this case, and He does not, think. Think, if God does not deliver me, then the result is His perfect and righteous will. If God does not deliver you, think. If God does not deliver, then He will provide all you need to make it through what He doesn't deliver you from. Because He did that for the Lord Jesus. We sing a fitting song. He could have called 10,000 angels, but He died alone for you and me. Do you want a high priest that knows and understands to whom to pray in great need? Amen. He didn't ask Pilate for clemency. He didn't ask Herod. He didn't ask anyone. He went to God for His will to be done. And was heard in that He feared. Note the fear in this verse. This is not merely Jesus' fear of the cross. But more than that, His fear of God. His reverence for the will of God. Which is stated throughout every look, glimpse, that we have into the garden of Gethsemane. Was he afraid in his human nature of what was coming? Yes. But that's not why he was heard. He was heard because he feared God and reverenced his will and put all of his future into the will of God and God heard him and sent supporting strength. Remember, there was much more to his crucifixion than mere physical pain. He was about to be separated from his father in a way that he had never known before. Jesus' fear of the cross was not the bottom line for His relationship with God, for He was totally willing in faith to go to it anyway. But it was His fear, His reverent fear of God that caused God to hear Him and answer Him, which He had had His entire life. Remember in Hebrews 12, 28, just a few chapters from now, we are going to be told that to serve God acceptably, we need to do it with reverence and godly fear. The Lord Jesus always did it with godly fear. Always wanting His will. Never wanting to displease Him. So much so that God could say of Him that He always did those things that pleased Him. Jesus is said to have trusted God, like fearing Him for His deliverance in 1 Peter 2.23 where it describes us copying that great example when we have difficulties facing us. These words plainly declare that God did hear the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ in Gethsemane because it says, and was heard, in that he feared. When was Jesus using strong crying and tears? But in Gethsemane. It was during the days of his flesh. And he was heard, in that he feared. Don't forget, God did hear him. Jesus prayed in the garden in the middle of a night. But hours later, God forsook him. Though God forsook Jesus in fellowship, He supplied what He needed in strength. Even when we lose the joy of fellowship, you had better know that God is still sustaining you by His strength or you would never be recovered. You would never return to Him. You would never repent. But He's still sustaining you and preserving you. How did God hear Jesus? He heard and sent an angel to strengthen him. When we read about his praying in Luke chapter 22, Luke's account of Gethsemane 
an angel came and strengthened the Lord Jesus Christ. Angels do not move without the order of the God of heaven. And an angel came. God did hear. And God did send to the one who feared Him and reverenced Him so much that He said, Though, if it be possible, I would avoid this cup, Father, but if not, Thy will be done. When we have that will, when we have that choice to submit to the will of God, He will send angels to strengthen us like He sent an angel to strengthen the Lord Jesus. Look at Psalm 22 with me for briefly. Psalm 22, another messianic psalm that is the most graphic about the crucifixion in that it is the first person account of the Lord Jesus in prophecy of what Jesus Himself experienced and felt on the cross. Psalm 22. Notice what it says as we get started. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? The first verse of this wonderful psalm is what happened to Jesus on the cross. But notice what He says as as we continue in prophecy with greater detail than what we get in the New Testament. Why art Thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but Thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But Thou art holy, O Thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. So there is a way in which God did not hear the Lord Jesus Christ, did not restore that fellowship that He was lacking when He said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He had forsaken Him in the way of fellowship and the communion that had existed between the Father and the Son. But then if we keep reading Psalm 22, we come over to verse 24, where after Jesus Christ describes His whole crucifixion and comes to the end where He praises God, He says in verse 24, For He, speaking of God, hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath He hid His face from Him, but when He cried unto Him, He heard. And see, that is consistent with Hebrews 5-7 that God did hear Him. He did not immediately restore the fellowship, but He did send the strength in order to endure the horrific death of the cross. Back to Hebrews chapter 5. He was heard in that He feared. Do you want a high priest that though troubled, reverenced God and was heard for it? Amen, that's the kind of high priest we want. Though He were a son, are the first words of verse 8. As the Son of God, the Son of the Highest, the Son of the Lord Jehovah, Jesus should not have had to suffer something so personally ugly as the trial and the crucifixion there that we can read about in the Gospels. But you see in Gethsemane, His humble submission to His Father's will, though He was His Son. There could have been so much complaining. There could have been so much whining. But there was none of either. Like comes from us in far less circumstances. He did not complain it was unfair. He did not complain it was inconsistent. He did not complain that it belied God's love who had said, this is my beloved Son. Prove it, Father. There was none of that. 
By faith, he believed it. And though he were a son, he submitted himself to the cross for us. As the Son of God, he had been charged and sent to lay down his life for you and me. He understood his office and was willing, yea, ready and eager to do God's will if that was confirmed to him, which it was. He knew, for we are told elsewhere, that he would be highly rewarded for dying for us. You know, we're the children of God. And sometimes God allows, brings circumstances into our lives where it would be very easy for us to think this isn't consistent with me being a son of God. This isn't consistent with me being a child of God. If I was a child of God, then everything should be going smoothly and comfortably and easily for me in my life. Very many have thought that. Some have even had the audacity to say it. It's in our natures to think it. That if the Bible is true, that we are the sons of God, why are we suffering? I remind you of this son. Though he were a son, I mean a son like you will never be. Though he were a son, he chose to submit to the will of God and we should learn that same submission. Do you want a high priest, though privileged most highly by God, did all that was expected of him for you? Amen. Amen. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. Jesus, the Son of God, willingly submitted to pain in order to learn and illustrate obedience. This learning, Jesus didn't need to learn about obedience in some intellectual or academic way. He needed to learn it experimentally, which I sometimes try to explain to you as being very different. The learning is experimentally and practically not just academically, intellectually, or conceptually as to how do we define the word obedience. He really learned it by doing it. He submitted to the punishment of the cross. How can we ever complain about our trials when He bore worse ones so much better? You say, well, He was the Son of God. Yes, the one that was subject to all the feelings of your infirmities like you are. Do you want a high priest that did what he asks of you, though he did better through worse circumstances? That's a merciful high priest. By the things which he suffered. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It wasn't that the sufferings themselves taught Jesus obedience. It was his willingness to submit to those sufferings that taught him obedience. Because taking pain is not obedience. It's the choice to take the pain cheerfully and to do it for one cause, the will of God that teaches us obedience. And so we ought to learn by the example of our Savior to follow His practice and His choice, and that is to submit willingly to the will of God in our lives, even when it's painful. Suffering is good, as we have recently learned, to acquire patience, experience, and hope. James chapter 1, Romans chapter 5. No soldier dying for his country comes close to Christ's conscious, knowing decision. No one joins the military to die for their country. They join the military to help some other person from another country die for his country. Even in a battle, they don't go into battle planning to die, 
They go into battle planning to help someone else to die. It's different. Jesus knew at all times he was going to die and he wasn't going to push the button or pull the trigger or call those angels to his rescue. Instead, it was stand down without being said because he was not going to interrupt the will of God for his life to lay it down for you and me. Do you want a high priest that suffered significantly and willingly chose it for God? Amen. Verse 9, and being made perfect. He was and became and is an infinitely perfect high priest in every way by any measure. The Lord Jesus Christ was made perfect. He rose from the dead showing that he had met God's approval and God had restored his life. And he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He took his place at God's right hand. He opened the book of the everlasting covenant that was held in the hands of God. He ripped the seals off it. The the choirs, the choirs of heaven burst into his praise made of angels, made of the redeemed through the four and twenty elders and of all creatures in heaven, earth and under the earth sang his praises. He is a perfect high priest and being made perfect. He was perfect in His virgin birth. He was perfect in His obedient life to His Father, always keeping God's commandments. He was perfect in Gethsemane by saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He was perfect on His trial by not threatening, by not reviling, but going like a lamb to the slaughter. He was perfect by not calling twelve legions of angels or more so to deliver Him. He was perfect in forgiving those that were crucifying Him. He was perfect in giving all glory to God. He was perfect in offering up His Spirit to God by faith, even the God that had forsaken Him. He was perfect when He rose from the dead to go and find His unbelieving followers and show them that He was alive. He was perfect coming into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and He ever lives to make intercession for you and me. There's no intercession in Gethsemane. There's only prayer and supplication because it was for Himself to die on the cross with His finished work perfectly done, he sits at the right hand of God and it's no longer supplicating and it's no longer praying. The Bible word is interceding. And do you know what that is? That's a prayer on someone else's behalf. And so he's there for us. He is a perfect priest. Try to think of something that isn't perfect about him. What tribe did he come from? He came from the tribe of Judah. What family line did he come from? Twice. He came from David through both his legal father and his biological mother. He is a perfect priest. Being made perfect, he carried the value and worth of his own sacrifice to God into heaven for you and for me. He did everything perfectly. He lived perfectly, died perfectly, was buried, resurrected, ascended, and intercedes for us perfectly. This idea of perfection of Paul by the Holy Spirit isn't new. It was in chapter 2 and verse 10. In chapter 2 and verse 10 it says, For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. He is the perfect captain of our salvation. He has shown us how to do everything that we need to do 
And then He's gone far beyond and saved us from every time we haven't done what we should have done. He has saved us with an everlasting salvation and washed away all the sins that were laid against us. He was made perfect. Jesus sent word to Herod once. To King Herod, Jesus sent a little note one time. Go and tell him that after three days I'll be perfected. Luke chapter 13, verse 32. It is the combination of all that Jesus was, all that He did, and all that He does now that makes Him perfect. Do you want a high priest that is absolutely perfect in every way by any measure? Oh, that's the only kind of priest we want when we meet the Lord Jehovah. He became the author of eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. He became the author of eternal salvation. God gave the elect to Jesus Christ and He gives to them eternal life because He's the author of eternal life. There is a man in heaven. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is His name that has guaranteed and will complete your entire salvation. At the right hand of God with His sacrifice finished, having by Himself purged our sins, Hebrews 1.3, He gives us eternal life. Not only did He die or rise again, He ever lives to intercede. Do I need to turn to Romans 5.10, 8.34, or Hebrews 7.25 to show you that there is a role that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills every day greater in some respects than dying for you? Yea, rather, who was risen again, who even sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. It is not just the finished and completed transaction of 2,000 years ago, but it is the current remembering of it before God His Father from His right hand. Just like He will remember it when you stand before Him and He will claim you as His brother. Behold, I and the children which Thou hast given Me, I died for these, Father. The transaction is legally complete, but you are not yet glorified. And there is still a great day of judgment to come at the which the Lord Jesus Christ will stand in for us in the final stage, phase of glorification. And He's doing that right now. Do you want a high priest that has finished and is doing everything needed for your eternal life? Unto all them that obey Him. I love the Word of God. And though there are some that take verse like this, I have had to deal with this verse numerous times with the church of Christ. Those are the followers of Thomas and Alexander Campbell. Thus we call them Campbellites. They stole their whole church from Baptist churches. But shame on those Baptist churches for not being able to recognize the errors of the church of Christ. It says that He is an author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. The Holy Spirit can choose whatever He desires to describe the recipients of salvation. And He describes a number of things. And by those descriptions, it gives us a warning of what evidence we ought to have in our life that we are going to have eternal life by the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this place, here, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, and in other places, He chose to identify the elect by their obedience. Your decision to invite Jesus into your heart is not a condition or proof anywhere in the Bible. It's not even mentioned anywhere in the Bible for gaining salvation. Yet that was how many of us were taught that we got saved was by inviting Jesus into our heart, but it's not even taught in the Bible. 
this wonderful sentence about Jesus being a perfect high priest and the author of eternal life is for those that obey Him. Your baptism, no matter how much you believed, is far too little for real evidence. The real evidence of eternal life for those that Jesus will surely save is obedience. When the question is asked, how do I know I'm one of God's elect that Jesus died for? The answer is given in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. Peter specifically says, this is how you make your election sure. You add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge patience, godliness, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. It's not that we earn our salvation to heaven by doing those eight things, but it's the only way we can know that we're going to heaven and that we're God's elect and Jesus died for us by doing those things. And other passages of Scripture are like them. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And so we have the words here, unto all them that obey him. Salvation has never been a decision except for God's choice to save. Obedience is the evidence. Remember, the obedience has already been illustrated in this sentence by His obedience that He learned through submitting to suffering. He's the one that obeyed for us. Our obedience is evidence. His obedience is the condition of eternal life. Because Romans 5.19 tells us, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. One disobeyed, all became sinners. Adam, first Adam, in the Garden of Eden, all become sinners. One man obeys. Those become righteous that are in him by his singular obedience in another garden of Gethsemane when he submitted to his Father's will, went to the cross, was buried, rose again, and sits at God's right hand. We love Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There was no priest that came from Aaron There was no priest or Levite that came from Levi that could even come close to this one sentence description of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want a high priest that rewards... Listen very carefully. Do you want a high priest that rewards the wicked and punishes the righteous? No, you don't. You want a high priest just like this who is the author of eternal life unto all them that obey Him. The religion preached so popularly today that if you make a decision for Jesus, no matter how you live, you go to heaven. That is the most demoralizing, discouraging, unscriptural, crazy doctrine of salvation. The evidence of salvation should be pressed upon all of us, and that is to obey so that we know that we fit in Hebrews 5, 7-10, through 10, where Jesus Christ is a perfect high priest. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.